everybody. Thanks for checking out the second week's supplemental lecture. We'll be talking about chapter two, really the back half of chapter two in this supplemental lecture, interpersonal communication models. Now, I'm going to be very specific throughout this particular lecture on what I might need you to know for the future and just what I wanted to touch on just for the sake of covering things in this circumstance. Quick preview of this week as a whole. Remember, Thursday, January 25th, the first discussion board post will be due by 11.59 p.m. On Sunday, January 28th, discussion board post responses due. That's 11.59 p.m. as well as topic check number two is due at 11.59 p.m. So two assignments due this week, discussion board posts and topic check number two. So if you're checking this out before we meet in class on Thursday, just make sure that you're ahead of the game by checking out that discussion board post. And then a quick reminder coming up February 1st, that is our Thursday class period there, We'll have quiz number one in class. We'll take that at the end of class. There will be about 15 to 20 minutes to take it. It doesn't take most people that long. It'll be worth 40 points. It's a combination of matching, multiple choice, true, false, and short answer. It is closed note and closed book, but there is currently a study guide on D2L that can help you out with that. I'm not going to ask you anything that's not on the study guide. I might do that for some extra credit questions, but I'm not going to ask you anything that's not on the study guide for the main 40 points. All right, let's dive into communication models. And I think the regular transactional models of communication are a great place to start. So there are eight components of communication in these transactional models. We have our source, message, channel, and receiver. There's also feedback, environment, context, and interference. We'll talk about what each of these means as we go forward, but since we're using movie-themed lectures this week, I wanted to give you an example of each of these eight components of communication as we look at a movie. For example, the Disney version of The Lone Ranger was known to be one of the largest box office flops in history. It starred Johnny Depp. And so when we look at the eight components of communication through the lens of this movie, we see that our source in this case is Disney. They're the ones that produced the movie. They're the ones that distributed the movie. The message is the movie itself, The Lone Ranger. The channel, well, if you saw it originally, the channel would be through theaters in the case of a movie, or the movie would be shown on cable TV channels. Now it's available on Disney Plus or Apple TV. If you go and search it, I'm sure I'm one of just a few people that have ever searched to watch this particular movie on Disney Plus or Apple TV. The receiver in this case is whoever's watching the movie, so I used you as the example. The environment is where you watch the episode. So if you happen to be watching it on your cell phone, maybe in a busy setting, maybe you're sitting at home watching it on a couch, maybe you've got a home movie system, maybe you watched it in theaters originally, the environment is wherever you're taking that episode in. Interference is anything that's going to get in the way of that message. So distractions, maybe if you're watching in a theater, if you get texts on a cell phone and decide to answer those texts rather than paying attention to the movie, those get in the way of things. Maybe a bad television signal if you're watching on over-the-air television, bad internet connection if you're streaming it. So interference is anything that gets in the way of that message going from point A to point B. 
All right, now let's go through and define each one of these terms. So I've given you examples of each. Let's go ahead and get those definitions out. And the definitions are something that I want you to know. I think this particular breakdown of the transactional communication model is something that is helpful for us as we go forward this semester. So I do want you to know these eight steps and more specifically, I want you to know six terms within these eight steps in the communication model. The first is the source. I want you to know that the source is the originator of the message. This is the person or sometimes company that's usually responsible for imagining, creating, and sending out that message. The message is the thing itself. It's what we call the stimulus or the stimulus of meaning that's produced by the source for the receiver or the audience. So again, if you're just having a conversation with someone, the source would be you, the message is what you're telling them. The channel is the mechanism or the way in which you're getting that message across to the receiver. So I mentioned in the form of movies, that might be an actual television channel, but in the case of conversation, usually that's going to be text message, it might be email, it might be phone call, it might be face-to-face. -face. Those are all examples of different channels that we use to get information from one source to that receiver. The receiver is going to be the recipient of the message. They're the ones that are responsible for analyzing and interpreting the message. Now, because their analysis and interpretation is being applied to the message, this is something we'll talk about later on in the semester and even later on in this class, what they get out of the message might not be what the source intends them to get out of the message. For example, using the Lone Ranger, once again, Disney intended people to enjoy the movie, to uh, really get something out of it. And instead, like I said, it was one of the biggest box office flops in history. It lost a ton of money. So in that case, the receivers definitely did not receive the same message that Disney was hoping that they would get. The other four components, feedback, environment, context, and interference, you feedback is anything that the receiver sends back to the source. So if you were on social media around the time the Lone Ranger movie came out, you saw a bunch of negative messages being sent back to Disney regarding how terrible the movie was or how bad they thought the Lone Ranger movie was. That would be an example of feedback. But feedback in a person-to-person -person conversation would be more along the lines of someone nodding, someone shaking their head no. Any of those would be examples of feedback going back to the source. The environment, as we talked about, this is where you're receiving the message. So if you're having a conversation person-to-person, -person, could be in a coffee shop, could be in a noisy establishment. We used that example in the first lecture of class. So the environment really shapes how we bring in that message. And then there's the context, which environment plays a little bit into context too, but context has to do largely with our expectations of the conversation. So if we're having a conversation with another person and it's a friend we know well, we bring in certain expectations to that. In certain circumstances, we might not know what to expect, or we might keep our options open. If we've never met a person before and we're expected to have a conversation with them, we might keep our options open, and that's part of the context too, is not having a lot of that background information. In the case of the Lone Ranger, people walked into movies expected to be thrilled, expected to be entertained, and they came away with those expectations more or less not having been met, which is a large part of the context of why the movie failed overall. And then finally, interference. We talked about that. Anything that blocks, changes, alters the intended meaning of a message. If you can't hear the other person or if the other person is mumbling maybe, 
that would cause some interference. Obviously, the surrounding noise would cause interference. Any other distractions, those are all mechanisms of interference that you might encounter in these conversational mechanisms. Now, this entire lecture is about models of communication. The models of communication differ between transactional and constructivist models. Constructivists are sometimes called transaction models, confusingly, I know. But what I want you to know is transactional models are basically saying, hey, the receiver is sending, is receiving something from the source. There's these other components in there. That's what's going on. Constructivist models say, okay, both parties are receivers and sources simultaneously and they're negotiating meaning. So as you're talking with someone else, you're basically negotiating the meaning of those words as you're having that conversation. Now, that can be a useful tool in looking at certain conversations, especially how our interpersonal communication might go wrong with some people, but overall, it's very, very difficult to study from a nuts and bolts perspective. And so we talk a little bit more about transactional type models during the course of this class. And as we break it down here, there's really three types of these models that we'll discuss. So we have action models, we have interaction models, and we have transaction models. Now, as far as what I want you to know on a quiz or an exam, I do want you to know the basics of each of these. But I'm gonna give you examples of models here, and you're not gonna to need to know the specific examples. I will never ask you the tenets of the early SRAM model on a quiz or an exam. That's more of a graduate level thing. But I'm presenting the models to you on the future slides here or in the future in this podcast, if you're just listening along, to kind of give you an idea of some of the models that exist out there and some of the ways we think about communication that are out there. But I do want you to know the difference between action, interaction, and transaction models. So action models are models that view communication as a one-directional transmission of information. These models were very big in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Part of the reason for this is if you think about the work atmospheres that were studied around this time, you think about a very clear delineation between a supervisor and that supervisor's employees. Information went down. There wasn't a large opportunity for those employees to give information back to the supervisor. It was simply nod and do the work. And a lot of communication research around this period of time took place in and around these businesses. So it makes sense that these action models were developed. And in fact, the eight steps that we looked at just now had a lot of action model components to them, except for maybe feedback. But action models see things as a one directional transmission of information. If you want a better example of an action model, think about a radio broadcast you're listening to in your car. You can't really give any feedback while you're driving along in your car. You can pretty much just listen to it and that's it. Or a podcast that you're listening to in your car. Now, maybe at some point you're given the opportunity for feedback, but at that moment when you're driving, at least I hope you're not providing feedback or texting anyone or anything like that when you're driving. So it's pretty much just one direction. Interaction models view the sender and receiver as having equal components and both being responsible for the effectiveness of the communication. So this gives the receiver some responsibility as well, whereas action models pretty much put the responsibility on the sender. Interaction models say, hey, communication is exactly that. It's an interaction. The sender and receiver are both responsible for making sure that that information gets transmitted correctly. And then transaction models, 
they're more popular nowadays because transaction models view all parties within a conversation or within a communication diagram as simultaneous senders and receivers. And I think if you were to ask me my beliefs regarding communication and communication dynamics, I think transaction models have it mostly correct. Even as I'm talking to you now, I'm cognizant of the fact that you might give me feedback via D2L messages or emails, or you might bring something up in class. And when I lecture in class, I'm obviously cognizant of the fact that you are giving me real-time feedback. Even if you're not intending to communicate to me during class, if you're like, let's say on your cell phone during class, I'm taking that as communication from you that maybe you're bored, you're distracted, etc. And so it really is much more of a two-way street. We're simultaneously sending and receiving information as we communicate with others. And that's one of the reasons why I do like transaction models. We can see the transaction models too, as we look at how these are applied, even in workplaces. I think today's workplaces are much more now, not always, but generally much more now set up to where people can give feedback to supervisors. People can give feedback to those that are higher up, whereas this wasn't as accepted in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So we can see the kind of the transition in communication studies taking place along with the transition in workplaces. All right, so that's what I want you to know for quizzes and exams. What I'm about to tell you is just good information, useful information, ways in which I want you to get you thinking about interpersonal communication and communication as a whole. So I'm gonna show you some of these models here. First is the action models. The Shannon Weaver model was one of the first that came out. They studied phone lines basically and older phone lines and said, hey, communication is linear. The sender is encoding a message through a channel to receiver. The receiver decodes the message. There's no room for immediate feedback here. Now, this is again a very early 1900s telephone type model. So that's one of the reasons why the Shannon Weaver model rose to some sort of prominence in the early 1900s. And for those that are following along on video, I've got a little graphic up here that the book has provided of the Shannon Weaver model there. But this is pretty much just a one-way street. The source encodes a message, sends it to the receiver, and then we're done. This leaves a lot to be desired, I think, which is where some of these other models come into play. We also have the early SRAM model. The early SRAM model says communication isn't linear. It's just not point A to point B, like Shannon Weaver said, but it's a process. And messages are interpreted based on these individual factors. So this is where we start to get things like environment and context and other things coming into play within our communication models. The early SRAM model also says that communication is largely unsuccessful as a system when feedback is absent, ineffective, or incomplete. And I think there would be some pushback, especially for those maybe in mass media back in the 1940s, the 1950s, saying like, no, we don't need feedback. We know what the people want, etc. But in reality, when we think especially about interpersonal communication, if we get no feedback from someone, if we send an email off to someone asking a question and it just goes off into the ether and we don't get any message or response back, we're, we don't feel as though we're really communicating. We don't feel as though that communication system is really very functional there. So it's all about, once again, sending, receiving, feedback, decoding, all of that stuff is taking place there. Uh, within the SRAM model, and it's not quite as linear, it's a little bit more circular than the Shannon Weaver model was. 
And then we have Burlow's SMCR model. The SMCR stands for sender, message, channel, and receiver. So again, we get a lot of those eight components in place there. We've talked about these things already, the sender, the message, the channel, and the receiver. So this is a more stripped down model. This is a little bit more linear than the early SRAM model is, but it's basically saying, hey, here's how we get things from point A to point B. This is more building on the Shannon Weaver model, I would say, than anything. So those are all action models. Interaction models are a little bit different. The Osgood and SRAM model says that communication is circular and complex. So this builds on the early SRAM model, of course, where we talked about it. It's not a linear process. But here's where the Osgood and SRAM model really builds on that idea. They say communication is reciprocal and equal. So for effective communication to take place, communication should be an equal process. Now, does this mean in a conversation both people are talking the same amount? No, it doesn't. What it means is that both people, both parties are playing an equal role in the conversation. Sometimes that role is as a listener. Sometimes you can be a therapeutic listener and not talk all that much. So that's all they're really saying here is communication needs to be reciprocal and it needs to be equal. Both parties need to be taking an active role in the process. They also say that messages are based on interpretation. Once again, all of those other things, context, environment, those come into play. And they mention, they mention once again, the encoding, decoding, and interpreting process, just like some of the action models did. Now we have the Watslavic, Bevan, and Jackson model. And we'll get to that here in just a second. I've got an image for those following along on video for the Osgood SRAM model, but we've pretty much already explained that. Uh, the next model, communication is continuous, is conversational. And here's the key. They say every message is meaningful. And I think this goes back to what we were talking about when we mentioned the idea behind you cannot not communicate. Even if it's not your intention to communicate sometimes, you cannot not communicate. We all send unintentional messages along. And these messages oftentimes have a lot of meaning to the receiver. So this is something that we have to keep in mind. Even messages that we don't intend to send can have meaning and should have meaning, quite honestly. So this is what's most difficult sometimes for people that don't consider themselves good communicators to wrap their head around. Is that, oh, well, if, if I'm silent on an issue, then... That means that I have nothing to say, that there's no meaning to that, etc. The reality of it is silence has as much meaning as non-silence does in many cases. The other thing that this model says is that, um, once again, it should be symmetrical or at least complementary. And it can be via an analog format, so face-to-face -face conversation, or it can be in a digital format, as in text messages. Stimulus response reinforcing the process, all of that going into it. But what I, I want you to kind of get out of this, again, not going to ask this on a test or a quiz or anything, but the Watslavic, Bevan, and Jackson model says every message is meaningful, even the unintentional ones. And again, when you look at different types of counseling, when you look at different types of communication processes, sometimes people aren't aware that their lack of communication has meaning or sometimes they are and they just don't care but we need to make sure that we're aware that regardless of how we choose to communicate or not communicate it has meaning to another party just on the nature of the fact that it's communication 
And I want to look at one transactional model as we close out here. Here's Barnland's transactional model. Now this is all over the place a little bit, and this is why we don't spend a lot of time on transaction specific models, kind of like what we talked about in the beginning. So this is different from a transactional model with those eight components of communication that I talked about to kick off the lecture. But Barnland's model says that encoding and decoding occur simultaneously. Okay, I think most of us can agree with that. Just like I talked about during the course of a lecture, I'm getting messages from everyone in the room and I'm decoding those just as I am giving out messages and hopefully everyone in the room is decoding those as well. It also says communication is a continuous endless cycle. So this picks up where some of those interaction models left off. It's a continuous cycle, it's cyclical, it's circular, kind of as we talked about. Communication constantly changes. That's another tenet of the transactional model from Barnland. Barnland also says that there is a multi-layered feedback system involving oral and nonverbal communication. We'll talk about nonverbal communication as it pertains to interpersonal communication later on in the semester, but I think this is another easy thing to get on board with. We can look at it and say, we get feedback from all different sources. It can be spoken feedback, it can be nonverbal feedback, and again, even non-communication or trying not to communicate is going to communicate some sort of feedback. If we send a text message to someone and we get ghosted, let's say, that is giving us feedback that the other person perhaps doesn't want to talk to us or maybe doesn't have time to talk to us. The other thing that Barnland says is that communication is complex. Look, I mean, obviously communication is complex, otherwise it wouldn't have entire degree programs set forth in colleges and universities throughout the country. But there are cues there, public, private, behavioral cues. There's contextual cues, so social, cultural, relational cues all in there. And then there's that noise. So sometimes interference, but sometimes noise also affects how we bring in a particular message. It doesn't need to necessarily be interference. And once again, semantic noise, psychological noise, physiological noise, physical noise, all of this stuff. These are basically fancy terms for things that we'll talk about later on in the semester. We're going to talk about how we understand certain concepts, how we understand certain words and signals from other people, and how we understand nonverbal communication or how maybe we don't understand nonverbal communication. So that's kind of what all of it builds into. I'm going to throw a graphic up on the screen for Barnland's transactional model there. Basically arrows going every which direction. But this is closer to some of those models that say that there's that negotiated meeting in between. But basically this Barnland model says that communication is a complex process, it's an ongoing process, it's a cyclical and circular process, and there's a lot of coding and decoding of both verbal and nonverbal messages and non-messages as well taking place. I want to close out this supplementary lecture by talking very briefly about ethics and communication. We don't necessarily address it elsewhere during the course of the semester, but it is something that we have to talk about during the course of the class. Ethics are a set of moral values that each person carries throughout life. At least that's the book definition of it. But one thing I want to mention is the National Communication Association kind of outlines their general guidelines for ethic, ethical communication, and they include the following. So truthfulness, that's pretty much self-explanatory. Freedom of expression and diversity. What that's saying is, do we feel free to express ourselves and do we feel free to include diversity in the conversation? This doesn't only mean racial diversity, as most of us are geared towards thinking, but it means diversity of backgrounds and diversity of thought. 
is their understanding and respect. That's another tenet of ethical values. Access to resources and opportunities. Are we respecting the individual? Are we condemning degrading communication? Now, the funny thing about this is, you know, we talk about respecting the individuality and freedom of expression, yet there's also this condemnation about degrading communication. And some people would argue, well, I'm just, you know, I communicate in this way. That's me. You should respect that individuality. So there is some push and pull. There's some dialectics basically in this ethical code that I think are worth pointing out and just worth, uh, worth knowing. Is there expression in pursuit of fairness? Is there a respect of privacy and confidentiality? This comes into play when we talk about disclosure and self-disclosure and forced disclosure later on in the semester. And then do we accept responsibility for our own communication? I think this is important too. And this is important for us to grow as communicators is accepting that responsibility. When we communicate something and maybe the other person doesn't understand what we're talking about, it's very easy to push that as being an external problem. Well, it's their fault they didn't understand what I was saying. But the reality of it is we should have to be reflexive and accept responsibility that maybe that person didn't understand because we weren't being clear, we didn't put it in the correct terms, maybe we used euphemisms, we used unclear language, any one of those things. So I think of all of these nine things as we grow as communicators throughout the course of this class, I think accepting responsibility for one's own communication is a very, very important aspect of this ethical code. And it doesn't mean always saying that you're the one to blame. Look, if you tell someone to draw a square and they draw a triangle, are you the one to blame? No, probably not. Maybe you could explain what a square is, but if you do all of that and they still draw a triangle, it's not always your fault, right? But it is important to accept at least some responsibility if an outcome of communication isn't optimal. And I think that's one thing we should all remember as we go forward, not only in this class, but in life as a whole. All right, just a quick reminder regarding the quiz as we wrap up this uh, podcast and or video. Quiz is worth 40 points, as I mentioned, matching multiple choice, true, false, fill in the blank or short answer. No notes are allowed on the quiz, no books are allowed on the quiz, but one thing I do want to mention to everyone is that the quiz, once again, February 1st, is curved to the second highest score without extra credit being applied. So the quiz is worth 40 points. There are two extra credit questions on the quiz. If the highest score in the class scores 40 points, hey, good for them. The second highest score in the class scores 38 points, but still gets some extra credit questions correct. That quiz is going to be curved to 38 points. So 38 points will be 100% on that particular quiz. What this means is that there is a distinct possibility that multiple people in the class could actually score over 100% on the quiz due to the extra credit questions. And in fact, in the past, I found that quizzes are good make up points opportunity for a lot of students that, you know, maybe if you've missed a topic check or something like that, if you score really well on a quiz, it's possible to make some of that ground up through extra credit and scoring over 100%. Overall, I would say that my quizzes are nothing to be overly concerned about. Most of my quizzes have an average grade of a B plus, and that's even considering the students that don't study for them. Generally speaking, the students that study for quizzes get A's and high B's on quizzes. So I wouldn't worry too much about it, but still check out the study guide on D2L. It has what you need to know. All right, that's it for this supplemental lecture. Thank you so much for checking it out. And I'll be back with you next week with more supplemental communication information as we discuss chapter three in this class.